Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Growth is usually the goal for any business. But what does growth mean to you, and how much are you willing to change in order to achieve it? Tiffany Bova has spent a career studying growth in companies large and small, going from being an analyst at Gartner to becoming the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce, all the while building her network of thought leaders and her experience as a speaker and writer. In this episode of Hack the Process, Tiffany will tell us what she does to keep the content in her live presentations fresh, how she built up the confidence to approach and connect with people like Ariana Huffington, and why she decided that now was the time to condense what she's learned into her new book and her first book, Growth IQ. Today, I'm speaking with Tiffany Bova. She is the Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. And she's also the author of the new book, Growth IQ, which is about getting smarter about the choices that will make or break your business. Tiffany, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. And I hope you are as well. Yeah, so far, so good. The day has been going well. And I'm really excited to get a chance to talk with you about this. So just to get started, tell me about this book that you've got. Yeah, so it's called Growth IQ. I'm super excited about it. It feels like this culmination of 25 or 30 years in business, not only as a quota-bearing sales rep, but a sales leader, and then on the marketing side, as well as customer service, as well as my time at Gartner, sort of analyzing and looking at ways in which businesses have transformed in order to continue to grow. And so I, I feel like this is this culmination of sort of the story narrative that's been going on in my head. And this was a great time, I think, for me to put it down on paper. What's fascinating to me is I look at the, all of the things that you've done, and this is the first book you've published, I believe, right? It is the first. Uh, it is the first. And everyone goes, great, you know, when are you going to do another one? I'm like, Let, you're like, you know, I'm, I don't know if I have another one in me. And, and everyone laughs and says, that's what every first-time author says, right? I don't know if I have another one in me. And so right now, I don't know if I have another one in me, but, you know, ask me 12 months from now, maybe, maybe I'll have a different answer. <laughs> well, we might get you back on the show then. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about what made you decide that now was the time after all of the things that you've done to publish a book? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, when I was an individual quota carrying sales rep and sort of moving up on the executive track, if you will, working for businesses, I thought that that was going to be sort of my journey. And then luck would have it, I, I like to say that I ended up working at Gartner and I didn't really know, you know, Gartner is the world's largest sort of analyst and advisory firm in, in the tech space. And I didn't know how long I was going to be there. It's very kind of academic and academia and it's not me. But by the second year, I kind of went, okay, I, I, I kind of finding my sea legs, if you will. Then kind of by the fourth year, I was like, well, now I'm kind of trying to figure out what it is I could say that's different and new and provocative and, you know, really kind of is taking advantage of the things that I would learn while being at Gartner and having this massive amount of thinkers that were out really shaping what people were talking about and thinking and, and all of those kinds of things. And I got to consume all that content and then say, all right, if I could put the lens on for a sales leader or a marketing leader or a customer service leader, what would that message be? So then I sort of learned my way through that. And then I said, 
well, if I could see and figure out kind of patterns of things that I think are happening and having all these wonderful and, and compelling conversations with clients, maybe there's something I can actually say that's new and different. And so sort of year seven, I started writing things that were kind of thought leadership, if you will. And so it took me a while, kind of, I guess, to find my groove, I guess. And year seven, I put out something called the future of sales and it ended up winning the thought leadership award at Gartner. And then I did it again for a second year. And then I was about to do it again for the third year. And then I was sort of moved into being a research fellow. And it was a wonderful time for me to learn how to put thinking down on paper where normally I would communicate it verbally, sort of what I was thinking and my story would be more verbal or a keynote, but not on paper broader than a research note, you know, that might be sort of 10 or 12 or 15 pages. And so I had to find my way there. And then I left uh, Gartner and came to Salesforce and sort of a year, year and a half went by and I said, okay, you know, now I've got this whole new perspective. And if I take all that together and mash it up, does it say something interesting? And I thought so. And so I think it was more of a timing of I needed to be at this place in my journey and having gone through all the things I went through to feel like it would be something worth the time for someone to read. That was a long answer to a very short question, but I don't think there's any other, it's not like I woke up one day and said, I want to be an author and that's what I'm going to do. That That's definitely not how it happened. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because some people approach writing a book as, you know, I'm just going to come up with the formula and I'm going to publish the book and I'm going to build a platform and an audience and put it out there. And other people like you, I think, have put real thought into how this fits into all of the things that you're trying to do with your career and your life. You've been writing for a while, but not writing in, in book format. You've been publishing in other formats. Yeah. So I would write, obviously I would write research notes at, at Gartner. That's sort of what we did. And then our content was consumed that way. I write blogs, I tweet, I write on LinkedIn, you know, so short form, but nothing even remotely close to, you know, 80,000 words, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, a 500 word blog, I want everyone to just marinate on that for a second, right? Like 500 word blog. And you you know, anyway, for me, you know, you look at the screen, you go, oh my God, I have to write this 500 word blog. And then, you know, my publisher says, okay, you know, you have to deliver 75,000 words by this date. And I just, you know, I just I, I think I swallowed hard. Like how many words? Like 75,000. Okay. Let me, let me get right on that. Right. And of course, in this case, you went with a traditional publisher for this, even though, you know, it's 2018 and there are a lot of other options for publishing. Yeah. I went the traditional route. I had portfolio was kind enough to sign me and be willing to publish the book. And, you know, I think it was the right thing for me to do. I think there's so much that I don't know in this particular category and who better to go with than portfolio. There's a lot of support that you get from working with a traditional publisher. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, I don't know what I don't know, which there's a lot. I don't know. So <laughs> when it came to doing this, so, you know, it was, it was more of a, you know, Hey, listen, if, if you're willing to take the time with a first time author and, and help me sort of work through the process, I, I'm willing to put in the work. Well, your career was certainly one of the things that must have attracted them to you as a first time author, but also I feel like you're very good at articulating the audience and what they could get out of the book that you're working on. I hope so. I mean, you know, at this moment, everybody loves it because it's in the inner circle of people who are going to be like, oh, it's great, right? <laughs> it's when, well, although my friends would tell me the truth as well, that eh, it's not very good, but I, I'm really looking forward to it getting out there and being consumed by lots of people so that I really can get feedback and understand what really resonated with them and what they could relate to. And, and also things that I maybe could have said that I didn't say that I can weave into, you know, future works, blogs or podcasts, or, you know, even when I'm on stage. So I'm really, 
really looking forward to that side of it as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that they don't even talk about when you talk about publishing a book is the feedback loop that you get from putting something out there and then getting people who've invested the hours and days that it takes to read an actual book. They feel like they have a connection to you and they have the opportunity now to get back to you and give you real feedback on the things that you're saying. I think that's going to be an exciting part of it. Of course, you're used to being in front of people and you've got an extensive career as a speaker also. Yeah, and it was interesting and through my speaking career, when I was first starting, I was really hungry for, you know, I want to be better and how do I be better? And so I would I would really solicit feedback. Like and so maybe year two or so I started saying, which people would always want sort of copies of my presentation. And so I would kind of do it in trade. I'd be like, you can have a copy of my presentation if you give me feedback. And it couldn't be feedback like, oh, you know, you look rested or <laughs> I liked your suit or you're funny or, you know, you had to give me feedback like I completely disagreed with this or I really agreed with that. Or when you said this, it really resonated with me. As a matter of fact, this is what we were doing and what I you know, learned along the way. Like I want that kind of feedback because what ended up happening was almost weekly or at least every other week when I was on stage, I would get a percentage of people who were in the audience who would give me feedback. So my presentation was always slightly pivoting with this, this influx of of feedback, real-time feedback. And so when I would get off stage, lots of people would say, wow, you know, you're, you, it was like you were speaking right to me and no one else was in the room. Like, were you sitting in our last management meeting? You know, were you in our last team call? And the way I could stay that connected to the pulse of what was happening in, in the market was those emails and was that feedback that people were willing to give me as it related to the presentation and the topic I was talking about. So feedback to me is, I think it's critical to making sure that you stay aligned to whatever it is, you know, the topic that you're trying to learn about. I love hearing that your talks evolve as they go from from speech to speech. There are some presenters you can take, you know, 15 minutes into their speech three years ago and 15 minutes later, and they will match up exactly. It sounds like you really adapt your speeches as time goes on based on the feedback you're getting. Yeah. And I would say that it's not only adapting the speech, but it's also looking for new stories. So when someone goes, oh, you must have been sitting in our team call and this is what happened. And then they tell me a new story, right? So now I'm up on stage the following week and I'll go, as a matter of fact, <laughs> You know, I'm on that slide, right? And I'll say, I gave this presentation a couple of weeks ago and someone sent me an email and they told me this fascinating story. I'm going to share it with you, right? And I, you know, I leave out the names kind of a thing. But then people are like, oh, you know, it's not these like multinational billion dollar companies that people would expect Gartner to be talking about. It might be some small business startup that has this really innovative solution or way that they overcame something. And people really enjoyed and I got a lot of feedback about how much they valued those stories. I can imagine. And you yourself are a real success story in terms of the effect that having a speaking career can have on your own career and also on the content that you can generate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's where it takes a, a lot of work. I mean, you know, people will say, you know, what is an average, you know, what does your day look like? And a good portion of my day is totally dedicated and focused on consuming content in various might be a podcast, might be a TED talk, might be a webinar, might be a video, might be tweets, an article in a magazine, you know, whatever it might be. If I'm flying, it's usually magazines. You know, if I'm, you know, if I'm driving, it's a podcast. I mean, it just depends, right? I'm, I'm constantly trying to consume because I'm always starving to learn. And I believe in being a student of my profession. And my profession is that when I'm standing on stage, I try to add value and have people that are sitting in the audience when they get up and walk out that they feel like it wasn't a waste of their time. You know, we can make more money. We cannot make more time. So if they give me 45 minutes or an hour of their time, I want it to be valuable. Now I can't make everybody happy every time, 
But if I can get people to just learn one thing or think differently about one thing, and I can make a difference, you know, with people in the audience in some small way, even subconsciously, then I feel like I've been successful in, in that time I've been on stage. That's respectful too, because I mean, this is the attention economy. And as you say, time is not a replaceable commodity. So what are the resources that you've been consuming lately? What do you turn to? Because the book is called Growth IQ, I'm very interested in how companies are recovering from a growth stall, trying to amplify their growth in some way, expand into new markets, right? Anything around that. So, you know, I love earnings call season, right? Where someone will say, oh, these guys had a great quarter, and then I'll read the transcript or listen to the earnings call if it's a company that I, I'm interested in or I don't know and I'm interested in, wow, they had a really great quarter. I want to know why. And so I'll go looking for how they did it. And that to me is a learning lesson. So I may learn a tidbit of a company I'd, one I'd never heard of or I'd never studied. And it was something really fascinating that I can then apply to some other story I'm telling or even give that one. So Sometimes it's just something random that, you know, I, I see a tweet or something like that and it, and it mentions or, uh, you know, I'm listening to a podcast and they talk about this great company was doing amazing things. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of that company. Like, and I jot it down and then I go and let me find out about this company. So, you know, it's kind of wherever the road takes me that day. I don't have a set set, although I do have people that I follow and I do have newsletters I subscribe to and I do have magazines I get and, you know, those, and podcasts I listen to. But that's really when I'm not finding anything else to really peruse versus my first place that I go. Fair enough. And so it sounds like a lot of the reading and consumption that you do is very research oriented. I would love to know how Tiffany Bova researches something that she's interested in finding out more about. So for example, if it's some company that I heard, like, gosh, they, I have to say it was the greatest experience I've ever had. And, you know, I tell all my friends about it and I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that company. Right. So then I say, well, what so note to self. Sometimes if I'm really interested, I'll text message the name to myself or an idea or something. And then I'll, when I get back to my desk, I just get on to, you know, start searching. And if they're publicly traded, I might do the last earnings call. Or if, you know, the CEO is really socially active, I'll go see, do they have a TED Talk or a webinar? Or were they speaking at some event? Can I catch a couple minutes, you know? So I just sort of go where it takes me. And maybe I know somebody who works there. If that's the case, then, you know, I'll reach out to them and say, hey, I was just having this conversation today and they were raving about how you do this. You know, would you spend five or 10 minutes with me on the phone and tell me how you guys do this? And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they go, oh, I have no idea. Like I'm not even on that side of the business or I don't know how we do it. But I don't limit myself to, I really, literally, it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. And I just go where the little crumbs take me. I love that. I love that. And, and so I like, you know, following up with actual people that you know, who might be able to connect with somebody at the company that allows you to really find that insider story on how they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of think of myself as an anthropologist of growth. A company has grown and then I try to go in, not from an advisory standpoint today, you know, not as much from an advisory standpoint that I'm helping them find out to grow. Although part of my role at Salesforce is that. But it's a lot about going, let me look at what you know the, the result is, the outcome is they grew. And then let me try to deconstruct what that meant. Did they launch a new product? Did they merge with another company? Did they acquire somebody? Did they come up with a new brand positioning or a value prop? Did they change their pricing? Did they do a new partnership? Did they completely reorganize their sales teams? Like, what did they do? You know, because you don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden growth shows up. You have to have done a series of things. And so that's what keeps me curious because like I found in the book, it's never just one thing and there is no one roadmap to growth. And it's kind of like these Lego blocks of how are you going to build growth for a particular company in a particular industry at a particular point in time with a particular product set? And what are the little lessons that you can learn that are applicable 
from a horizontal standpoint versus from a vertical. And that's what gets me excited when it's things that can be applicable across industry. Some of the greatest innovations that are happening these days are the combination of things across industries that you never might have thought would have anything to do with each other. The very idea that computers could be used for socializing. Who would have thought of that 20 years ago? Absolutely. And I give this example in the book, and that's one of the big concepts in the book is that you need to look at the context of the market before you decide how, as a business, you want to grow. And so context may be something like, could a streaming media company, let's just say streaming music, could they have launched in 1984, 94, 2004? Okay, maybe like 2010 when smartphones crossed the chasm and you know what I mean, like all that. And so you needed other things to happen, even though streaming music was a great idea. You had to wait for everything else to catch up to make that possible. Consumers to have either an iPod or have a smartphone that could, you know, hold way more songs than any human being could listen to in a given day. And it needed to hit a price point from a phone perspective that, you know, more people could have it. Then you need to have access to wireless or broadband. There was a lot of things that had to come together for streaming anything to work. So that's what I mean by context, like the market has to be right. The second thing is, is that it has to be done in the right combination. So, you know, Netflix is an example starting with DVDs in the mail, I think was a right move because if they had just started with streaming, they might find themselves in a situation where they couldn't have held on financially long enough to wait for all those other things to come to fruition before the masses could get streaming. The context does matter. And obviously companies like Apple, for example, that were coming out with personal digital assistance before there was sufficient network in place and sufficient context for people to be able to work with them you know, they were trying to push the envelope and they didn't quite make it at that point, but they set the standard for things that came later. Absolutely. And then you hear everybody go, you know, how do I not get blockbustered or Kodak, right? And then how do I Uberize my business or Airbnb my business or, you know, anybody else, right? We work my business or Airbnb, my, or whatever it might be, or Tesla or, you know, pick somebody or even Salesforce my business in my case. And so ultimately, you know, I think everyone is trying to not get caught and I think now the 21st century business cannot rely on 20th century sort of mental and business models to be successful. And so this is this, it can't be what got you here is going to get you there. We now have this entirely separate set of tools and capabilities and enablement with technology to get us from point A to point B. And you have businesses that are becoming, you know, multi-million. And in some cases, you know, one of the stories in the book is Kylie Jenner, $650 million with 20 employees. And so you go, okay, <laughs> like that's not a 20th century business. And so, you know, Uber owns no cars. I'm being literal here, right? You know, Airbnb owns no hotels, although some of those things are changing, right? And WeWork owns no buildings. And once again, some of those things are changing. But at its core in the start, when they got off the ground and sort of cut their teeth in their new business model, they were very asset light, which is very different from product-led companies who have said, we're going to build it, then people will come, or our product is of better value, and now customers are saying the product isn't the only thing that I'm going to make a decision on. It puts people at a bit of a disadvantage if they've been in industry for a longer time because they might not be able to see across those vectors. Yeah, and, and I would tell you that this is the hardest thing. So, you know, I feel like, and I say this all the time when I'm in front of customers, that I don't believe that we sell technology. My sales career has been always sort of in technology as kind of as an adult, it's been selling technology. And, you know, maybe in the last sort of eight or nine years, I really realized that I was not selling technology. I've always been selling change. 
and change is hard. And so, you know, I used to work for Gateway Computers and it, we were selling tablets in 2002, three and four. And everybody thinks Apple's the first one who did tablets. We were doing flat panel TVs. I was selling infrastructure as a service in 2000 before AWS and I was doing virtual private servers and I was a Loquas beta client and I would, I mean, I was super, super early, but still you were running up against people who had this mental model, which I think actually holds people back because they feel like we've always done it this way and it's worked. So I'm not going to try another way, or we tried it a couple years ago and it didn't work. So I'm not going to try it again. Whitney Johnson says this, it's kind of really at the foundation of what she is, is that if you want to disrupt your business, you have to start with disrupting yourself. And that makes people super uncomfortable. Oh, it absolutely does. And, you know, you're, you're not going to make people happy by telling them that they have to change the way that they think. Yeah. And, and then that's when they shut down. And as you get a bigger organization, you know, if you're a sole proprietor, this isn't as much of a problem. But you have 10, 15, 20 employees. It's like, not only do I have to change myself, but I need to get 20 people to change with me and believe in this and believe in the mission and the vision. And I need to inspire them to do the hard work to get there. That takes a very special kind of leader manager to do that. And I don't mean it has to be the CEO. There has to be someone in the company that can get those kinds of movements to happen. And so this isn't just about business models. That's why I say that Growth IQ has much more to do with the mental side of growth than the business side of growth, because you have to consider context. Don't just look at your competitors. It's about the combination of things that you do and the sequence in which you do it. That has everything to do with the mental model, not the business model. And so when I finally kind of that aha came to me, you know, maybe 18 months ago-ish, that you, you just sort of say, oh, I think that's something. And so how, how do I tell that story in a way that maybe other people think it is as well? And then am I crazy and do people think it's not that exciting? <laughs> so I started there. But once I started to socialize, it really started to morph really pretty rapidly. And so what I initially thought it was was not what it ended up being. And it was about a year ago that it kind of all came together in my head. Well, I, I for one, do not think that you're crazy. <laughs> I can tell you as, as somebody who consults with large companies and small ones, the getting that mindset shifts in such a way that it really goes down from the top all the way through the organization, especially a company that has an established hierarchy and a reward structure built around that established hierarchy. It can be very challenging getting that integrated into the way that a company works. Yeah, absolutely. And I would tell you this, that I don't say it flippantly either. Like change is really hard. And changing at scale is difficult. And changing the tires on the car while it's going around the track at 100 miles an hour is impossible. <laughs> so you have to be able to almost think like formula, right? The formula racers where they can go be going around the track and they don't need to change the tires going around the track. They need to be able to pull in and do it as quickly and efficiently as they possibly can. And it isn't just about speed. Even if they stopped for five minutes, doesn't mean that they might not still win the race. It's just in that particular sport, speed is important. But if you were to say, you know, as Abraham Lincoln did, like, you know, you have an axe, I have an axe, whoever can chop down the most trees in six hours, right? What's the first thing you would do? If you and I had an axe, we had six hours and we were in the forest and it was like, whoever chopped down the most trees is going to, you know, be the winner. I suppose I would try to stop you from chopping down trees. <laughs> well, that's a good one. That's a good one. With the axe, I hope not. But, you know, you might tell me there's like a spa down the street and then I'll drop my axe and go to the spa. But yeah, I would try to do it in a nice way, of course. So the, the, the answer to that is usually people will be like, I just start chopping because the more I do, the faster I do it. And that's sort of that speed mentality where the answer really is if you sat down and sharpened the blade for a couple of hours, by the time you were tired and your blade was dull, I'd just be getting started. And then I'd know how many trees I'd have to chop down and I'd be totally fresh. And my blade would be totally sharp. And that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. 
it's counterintuitive to slow down to speed up. It's very counterintuitive. And now everybody sort of pushes this anthem of speed is the new currency, which I don't disagree. But speed for speed's sake is as dangerous as growth for growth's sake, right? I mean, I think you have to do it. Think of formula, right? You're going to go around the track really fast. But if you don't stop into the pit stop at some point to either look at the context in the market, make sure your customers are happy, make sure you're not growing too quickly. You know, you just got to take a beat. And people are so used to doing it on an annual basis. I don't think that that's the right move anymore for planning because the market is moving too quickly. You don't have to do it daily, but I'd say quarterly. And I don't need you to completely flip the chessboard over every quarter. That's not the point. It's that is what you decided to do still working as well as you thought, or are there little pivots you can make to make it a little bit better because you've learned from the last quarter? And how do you just keep iterating and iterating instead of being stuck in this big bang concept of three years has gone by, we're totally on the wrong path. We've got to change everything from the ground up and people go, oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start. But if you're doing little pivots along the way, you sharpen the blade, sharpen the blade, right? And then chop some trees and sharpen the blade versus just trying to chop the tree down with a dull blade. It's like a bad go-to-market strategy or the wrong product is a dull blade. One of the advantages, though, of working at scale with large organizations is that you have the opportunity to go in a different direction with part of your organization and still keep things going with the rest of your organization. You're not just one car on the track. You might have a whole team of cars, and one of them can pull over while the others are moving forward. Absolutely. So it's, it's just really fascinating. You know, and this is what gets me really excited is when the most important thing for many CEOs around the world for startups, small, medium, large enterprise, and sort of global 50 is growth. And pretty consistently in almost all surveys, CEOs and leaders are saying it's getting harder. And as you get bigger, it gets even more harder, right? Because if you want to grow, you know, people will say, oh my goodness, you know, this $60 billion company is flat. Yeah, but flat at 2% on $60 billion is a lot of money, you know? So it's harder to grow as you get bigger because the number you have to hit to actually grow continues to get bigger. So that's sort of the challenge. But ultimately, you know, it, it's the right conversation. And I think that growth is getting harder. But in many ways, if you're willing to really just stop in that pit stop for a moment, look at your mental models, look at the context combo sequence, make sure you're on the right growth path, you can stay just ahead enough of keeping yourself at least better than before out of a growth stall, right? When you see two quarters of no growth, whether you're public or not, I just use two quarters as a point in time. Yeah, well, and that kind of speaks to one of the challenges that as an anthropologist going in and trying to figure out what this company's definition of growth is that you must come across. It seems to me that the word growth, it gets thrown around a little bit glibly. And I think it honestly means something different to each company. Yeah, and great point. And, you know, I often get asked, isn't all growth good growth? Well, it depends, I suppose, but it depends on how you're using the term. Yeah, and I specifically use the term growth in this book for top-line growth, full stop, not M&A, not cost-cutting. So it just was top-line, organic growth, and how to improve that. So there are many you know, that will have the philosophy of, we can help this company get back to growth by streamlining operations, cutting costs, and yes, you could do that, improve profitability, and so that improves growth. But in this case, I'm talking about the top-line without, as I said, M&A or cost cutting. But then it brings back the comment of, oh, well, so then I could just make a lot of money even if it's not great customers or, you know what I mean? It's not profitable because I'm just putting it in the top, right? And what happens on the bottom is not my problem. Also not what I meant, right? But it was my way of kind of honing in on the sales side of growth 
versus using operational or accounting means to grow the business at a P&L level. Right. Not that those things are not important, but that's the focus of what you're doing. And I know you put customer experience really at the center of a lot of what you do. I do. Customer experience to me has always been at the heartbeat of what I thought was going to differentiate any business, in, especially in the service industry. But it said a lot to the customer and to what you thought of. If a manager walks in and sees the lights burnt out and the sign not on and walks in anyway, are they really happy at their job? Do they, are they prideful of what they do? And what you know what I'm saying? Like your customers are only going to be as happy as your employees. And so it was a really big lesson. So when I had to come up with how, what did I want to talk about first, I've been a firm believer that experience is now the product. And so I said there's no way to start off this book better than customer experience being kind of the heartbeat, at least in my mind, of why businesses are, are being so disrupted that people who are able to accelerate experience in, in a scalable, repeatable way with the right cost structures and the right products are growing exponentially. The thing that comes to my mind is perfectionism and how it affects our ability to get things done versus to get through things. And that, that was where my mind went. It's not about perfectionism, although in some way it is. I don't mind if people make mistakes. That's not the point. The point is, is that if we do, what does it say about our brand? And if we do and we realize we've done something wrong, how quickly do we correct it? You know, in the eyes of the customer, right? Like if something is just really not done properly. It's a tricky balance to, to maintain, I suppose. I mean, and you're in the position right now where you have just published a book. And one of the things about publishing a book is that that sets in stone for a moment in time, all of your thinking around this one topic. And if your thinking evolves at this point, it's not like you can give another speech the next week and change that. That's right. And, you know, the good news is, is that the timing feels right to me. Like, you know, now the topic of customer experience is much more prevalent and people are really trying to figure out what does that mean and how do I do it and how do I make it work for my business and my employees. But it's not the only path. There's the book kind of outlines 10 paths to growth. And the first one is customer experience. And then there's you know, nine others in between. So the bookend is customer experience. And the last path is unconventional strategies, which I chose the topic of doing well by doing good. So it's sort of the social consciousness and just being much more purposeful over profit. And that felt like the right bookend for me where I am in my career, right? Start with people, including your employees and your customers, and end with just being more socially conscious of the role that business plays in the world today. Was that one of the things that attracted you to Salesforce? I know that Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, has made that a real cornerstone of the way that he works the company. Absolutely. Often people will say, wow, you could have gone anywhere. And while I don't necessarily believe that to be true, if, you know, and then they'll say, so why did you choose Salesforce? And throughout my career, you know, from the almost 20 years that I've been in and around selling technology and in the technology industry, I've gone to, I don't know, I'd have to guess, but it has to be north of 500 conferences at least, because I speak at probably 60 a year for 10 years, just speaking at them, which means I'm there, right? And then there's those that I went to where I'm not speaking. So, okay, let's go. Maybe we call it a thousand. I don't know. It's a lot. And I had been to Dreamforce 10 times as an analyst at Gartner. And hands down, no question, never ever did I even second guess what I'm about to say, which is there's no other conference I've ever attended from a professional perspective where I left wanting to be a better person. And I think that's what Dreamforce gave me every single time. And it inspired me as I was sort of, what am I going to do next in my career? Like, I want to go work somewhere where... I can fulfill that part of my life. How do I become a better person, especially in this kind of the social consciousness of, you know, equality for all and how do we give back and how do we pay it forward and the 111 program of donating our time 
you know, as individuals and collectively well over 2 million hours of all the employees time and giving back to not for profits. And it's just been inspiring on so many levels. And then to be able to work for a CEO like Mark Benioff is kind of icing on the cake. You're just inspired by how passionate he is about things that don't normally get a very loud voice, you know, in the corporate nomenclature. So it's it's really just been a privilege. That is wonderful. And it gives you the opportunity to find ways that you can give back in your own career as well. Absolutely. I'm curious, how do you take care of yourself while doing all of this? You're prolific. You are active. You're going out constantly speaking. You've got your full-time career at Salesforce. How do you take care of yourself while all of this is going on? But what I'm about to say is not meant to sound like I'm doing a name drop, but I actually had this conversation with Ariana Huffington on my podcast, but also off my podcast, you know, just the whole her work and thrive and, you know, the whole sleep revolution and really disconnecting and trying to get back to the human side of communication versus everything being digital and everything being online. And it's difficult. It really is. But I can tell you, because I do clock about a quarter of a million miles a year flying and traveling, that social has helped me stay connected. Right. Because then I feel like, number one, I know what my friends and family are doing, you know, and I can laugh with them online or, you know, share a story or they know what I'm doing. And I feel like then when I run into people that I haven't seen for a while, they're like, oh, my God, I love that you went to, you know, Johannesburg. I've always wanted to go there. And now they know more about my life because I can't keep in touch with everybody. And so I feel like it's actually kept me more connected just because of the nature of my work. But I've also had to work really hard to take the time to make sure that I do the things that help me recharge, whether it's going for a hike or working out or meditating or going to the beach or, you know, having dinner or hanging out with friends or whatever it might be. Like it, sometimes I will get too wrapped up and I, I need to do a little eject. And so I really try to listen to myself when I need a break. It's hard sometimes. That voice can be subtle and it's difficult to pay attention to it. In your own career, you mentioned a very early influence, but I'm curious what kind of mentorship or support you've gotten from people who've helped you along the way. There's so many I couldn't even mention. You know, I say this often, but I feel like I stand on the shoulders of so many people who have been so kind to me along my journey, whether it was intentional or unintentional sort of mentorship and guidance, I was open to it always. And even if I didn't like what they were saying, it was something maybe I needed to work on. But when I decided that I you know, wanted to change jobs, in my 30s, I changed jobs like every 18 months, which was probably a little risky, but it's what I did. And then I was at Gartner, my full 40s. And then now I've been at Salesforce in my 50s. And so I've been here almost two and a half years. So now you know how old I am. But in my 30s, it was just, you know, really about how do I make more money? In my 40s, it was like, okay, how, how do I learn and find sort of my voice and sort of what am I doing all this for? And then in my 50s, it was really, you know, how do I start to pay back the things that have been so great to me? So, you know, when I wanted to write a book, I've reached out to those that have done it for a long time and done it really well and books I enjoy and, and people I admire. So I reached out to the you know, sort of Seth Godin's and Dan Pink's and Josh Linkner's and, you know, I could just rattle off. There was Whitney Johnson's and there were so many people who were willing to take 15 or 20 minutes and just give me little nuggets of advice. And then when I wanted to change jobs, you know, I'd reach out and say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And so no formal mentor in that way, but boy, just such a wonderful network of people who have been sort of rooting for me on the sidelines and always willing to, to give a helping hand when, when I asked. And I, I'm so thankful because I know without a doubt, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now had those people not been willing to take the time to give me their words of wisdom. 
It's wonderful that you've had those people to reach out to and that you're also giving back to them. You're supporting them. You interview them on your podcast. You share information about what they're doing. You promote them through your, your guest blog posts, I believe. I would say this. I'd say I could never repay them. <laughs> there's not enough. There's not enough I could say about their work to ever just repay how wonderful I think that they've been to me. But what I can do is I can sort of channel the spirit of what they did to me to others. And so I try to, as much as I can, be available to, you know, give just even if it's a quick answer on LinkedIn or a quick response to a tweet or you know, take a fast meeting or even, you know, take two minutes when I get off stage and someone asks me a question. I try to take as much of that time as I can because those 90 seconds that I got from people early in my career made all the difference in the world. And then even if I just met them for 90 seconds, I got a chance to maybe meet them again. And maybe it was three minutes and I got to meet them again and it was five minutes. And then we were started to speak at the same events. And so I'd be backstage in the green room. We'd get 15 or 20 minutes. And then you know, 12 years goes by or 15 years goes by. And now you're kind of like, hey, I, I think I want to write a book. And you reach out to them and they're like more than happy to help. So it wasn't like a cold reach out right where I didn't know who they were. So for the listeners, it's you really don't know how important and impactful relationships are that you make along the way when you may be able to be of service to them or, you know, or vice versa for you. But I never would have dreamed that the first time I met Seth Godin in 2000, that 18 years later, he'd give me a quote for the front of my book. And, you know, I never thought that the very first business book I ever read, In Search of Excellence, written by Tom Peters, when I was 16 years old, that when I was 52 years old, that Tom Peters would give me a quote for my very first book. That is amazing. And it's a testament to the way that you've run your career. And also, it's kind of the definition of success in this era of social media, where being the person who shares all of these things brings that back to you. I would say that I would have to totally agree with you, right? Because, you know, people go, you were just lucky. And this is an Oprah statement, not mine. And I don't know if it's originally hers or someone else's, but her definition of luck was preparedness and opportunity meeting. I have a talk track that I do when I'm sort of presenting at like women in tech or, you know, career diversity or sort of the more on the softer side of business, if you will, although the most important, but on that side of the house, I I give a presentation called building your confidence muscle. And, you know, I show this picture of me in 2000 and I'm standing with this group of executives. We were at this like council meeting and we, you had to pay to go. And so everybody's sitting at this table. We're like the who's who in tech for indirect channel sales programs. Like they were the who's who of Compaq and HP and Xerox and, and Rico and Cisco and, you know, Microsoft and SAP and Oracle and IBM. And it was, it was the who's who. And here I was like early in my career sitting at this table going, what am I doing at this table? <laughs> anyway, I was lucky enough to be there, but we took a, we took a picture after this session and I show this picture first and it's hard to describe because it's so much better visually, but I'll try my best. I I'm standing center middle in the front row of this picture. And it's like in the corner of a conference room at a hotel. Like it's nothing fancy. Like we're just all, you know what I mean? It's not even a great picture. It's just, that was the picture. And this is before like cell phones had a camera. So like someone took a picture and I've actually had it all these years on, but my shoulders are rolled forward. My hands are sort of in front of my torso clasped. My chin is down ever so slightly. My eyes are up. I look like I feel like why I'm in this group. It's totally uncomfortable. Like I'm standing amongst giants. Like Me, when I look at me in that picture, I feel like what I'm saying is I don't belong. Then I show a picture literally 14 years later of me speaking at the Verizon Center in front of 14,000 people live in the round. And I walk up on stage and my arms are out, you know, my chin is high, my shoulders are back. And I'm like, hey, everybody. And so I show those two pictures and I go, 
you don't, that girl on the left does not get on that stage unless those 14 years have gone by. For me, it was that long, right? So other people might have a shorter time frame. I'm just saying for me. And I had to build my confidence over time. And so going back to, you know, that opportunity and the relationships and luck and all of that, that opportunity and preparedness, preparedness is something you can't fake. You just can't. So if I were to ask, so if somebody was sitting at a table next to you that you've always wanted to meet, who would it be? Okay. I'm going to say Mark Benioff. Okay. Mark Benioff. All right. So let's hypothetically say he was actually sitting at the table next to you right now. What would you do? I would compliment him on his choice of cheese. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. I'd find something to compliment him on. So would you be nervous about walking up to compliment him on something or would you just walk right up? I would be more comfortable if we were seated next to each other. Walking up to somebody might make me a little bit less confident. So I totally agree. And you have about 90 seconds, if that, right? Because you can imagine neither you or I are not Mark. So you probably have a ton of people coming up to you all day, every day, nonstop, right? And so I couldn't even imagine. But let's say that you probably guess you have a very short window to capture their attention or want them to even continue to speak to you, right? Like, absolutely. Is this guy even interesting enough? I don't really want to talk about cheese, whatever, (laughs) right? He could absolutely shut you down. Or he could be gracious and talk to you for a quick second and then sort of, you know, you move on. Or you get a little bit out of him and you get 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Or you get really lucky, right? And you get time, which I've seen him do as well. That happened with me with Ariana Huffington. She was sitting literally two tables away from me. So I went through the hole. You got to get up. And this was only like maybe six years ago-ish. If you don't walk up, you're going to really just, you're really going to be upset at yourself when you leave. That whole thing, what am I going to say? What am I going to talk about? Like, what am I going to do? I went round and round and now I'm, I'm on my confidence journey, right? Like now I've given, I don't know, 200 keynotes. I've, you know what I mean? Like what, what? you can't just walk over. And I was like, really, like, what do I do? So I said, I'm going to go for it. And it was on a Saturday. It was at a restaurant and I had just come from the gym. Like it was not a work environment. Anyway, I walked up, struck up a conversation and lo and behold, like, you know, that just sort of fostered that one ninety second. I started writing for HuffPost. She's interviewed me for Thrive. She's been on my podcast, gave me a quote for my book. I mean, it wasn't just that 90 seconds, but I'm giving, but had I not walked up instead of thinking about it and was I totally confident about it? Not really. You know, I, I felt prepared, not confident, but I felt prepared and the opportunity presented itself. So people are like, wow, you're so lucky to have written for HuffPoster. You're so lucky to have had Ariana on your podcast, or you're so lucky to have had Ariana give you a quote for the book. And in my head, I always play that back. That story I just said, where it was actually opportunity and preparedness put me in that moment of time. And I just happened to come up with my cheese story, right? <laughs> that was interesting enough that I captured her enough that she said, we should stay in touch. It's an inspiring story. And it's where opportunity and preparedness meet, but then you take action. And it's that action that if you don't do that, that doesn't happen at all. Yeah. The backside of this though is, and what I usually tell people when I, when I give this presentation is, you may crash and burn. Like the cheese might not go over well. He might shut you down. Ariana might say, you know what, I'm, I'm eating breakfast with my daughters. It's just not the right time. Of course. You know, that is just part of the journey. But if you don't try again, then you're not exercising your confidence muscle. It's like going to the gym. You can't go to the gym and pick up 300 pounds. You got to work yourself to the 300 pounds. And if picking up 300 pounds is having the conversation with Ariana, you're going to get sore. You're not going to want to go to the gym. It takes, you know, it's years, it's months of repetition. It's you started at 10 pounds, like it sucks. And then you get to 300 pounds. And so someone shutting you down or not engaging with you is just one of those days at the gym where you go home and you're really sore, but you got to go back again. And it's something that I take 
while I'm not Ariana and I'm definitely not Mark, I take very seriously when I do get off stage or if someone bumps into me as I'm walking through an event and they'll say, oh, they want to say something. I know that it's just, I just, it's just 90 seconds. It's just 90 seconds. And it might be my 89th 90 second for the day, but it's my first one with them and it's their first one with me. And I take very seriously that if I'm rude or dismissive or I shut them down, that I worry that what if I've just killed that confidence journey? You know what I mean? Where then they don't go up to someone again and try it again. So if I can make them feel safe and trusting, I can't do it every time. But even if I can't, I try to handle that I can't graciously so that they are still willing to go try it again. You know what I mean? So it's not always perfect. That's very thoughtful of you. And it's very respectful too, because as a person who's in the public eye, you could ignore that or you could take that into consideration every time that somebody approaches you. Yeah. And I don't want people listening, thinking that I think because I'm like, you know, someone in the public eye, but, but I get what you mean in the sense it, it's, it's just anybody, you know, if someone walks up to me and I can tell, I can almost tell that they're really insecure about walking up. And those are the ones I'll actually like, I'll grab their arm or they'll, you know, I'll say, Oh, do you want a selfie? Or, you know what I mean? Like you do something where you can tell where they're really uncomfortable or I've had people where they're so nervous and you're just like, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them the story. I will tell them the story that I could have crashed and burned. And trust me of the thousand times I've done that, there's been a bunch of crash and burns where someone's like, I'm too busy. I can't talk. It's not the right time. Or they're, you know, if they're really in the public eye, you know, their handlers won't let me get close or, you know what I'm saying? Like there's all kinds of things that will happen. I think it's, it's about being interesting and interested when people approach you. If anybody takes anything away from this, just know that um, you have practicing talking to somebody and Seth Godin said it so well on a webinar I did with him a number of years ago, where I said, what do you, how do you think people should start in marketing? He goes, start marketing. <laughs> like if marketing is not your job today and you have kids, like be the marketer for the PTA, for the cookie drive, for the fundraiser, like go donate your time at a nonprofit, be a marketer. If you want to be a marketer, you got to go be a marketer and you have to find a way to be a marketer if it's not your job. And then, you, but you got to go and do it. And so if you want to speak publicly and you want to get better at it, you got to go do it. So what does it mean? Are you just going to go like speak at the Boys and Girls Club? Or are you going to go like donate? You know what I mean? Like you got to just go speak and you got to be terrible and you got to be terrible a lot before you start finding your voice and your path. But you have to kind of make that happen. And, and it doesn't have everything to do with, am I going to earn money doing it? It's how do I do it and learn, even if it means just walking up to someone and having them shut you down. You just need to be gracious about it and, and be understanding that you're, you may be the 7,000th person that's walked up to them in the day. And don't let it stop you from walking up to the next person. But you can't let it stop you walking up for the next person. You've given my listeners a lot of things to think about in terms of building their confidence muscle and in terms of putting themselves out there. How can people find out more about what you're doing and how can they get in touch with you if they want to get 90 seconds of your time? I'm pretty active on Twitter. So it's at Tiffany underscore Bova and Tiffany is with an I at the end. I'm pretty good on LinkedIn as well. I put a couple of posts up a week. My podcast is What's Next with Tiffany Bova on iTunes. The book is Growth IQ. And I speak a lot sort of around the world. So if you're listening to this and you hear that I'm going to be on stage, please come up and say hi. That's awesome. And I, I hope that they will. And I'm sure that they will. Thank you so much for joining me on the Hack the Process today. Thank you for having me. I, I love hacking the process, right? I think it's never a straight line. It never is. And you've, your stories definitely demonstrate that. So it's been a real pleasure meeting you too. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. 
Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>